Today, we are diving into God being creator of heaven and earth. So just as a show of hands, how many people have seen the movie Shrek? Yeah, the movie Shrek. Great movie, ogre guy. Actually, oddly enough, that movie is 23 years old. I don't know, that make you feel a little old, right? Uh, but there's a part of this movie, there's a moment when, when Shrek does something that seems a little out of character for him. Donkey is expecting Shrek to kind of break out and to like attack these people, grind their bones for their bread, you know, those sort of things. But instead, Shrek decides to do this thing of great, of great compassion and love and do some things differently. And Donkey, He's, con he's concerned, he's, he questions his character, and he asks Shrek about it, and Shrek turns to Donkey and says, Donkey, or, ogres are like onions. To which Donkey replies, oh, they stink. No, that's not the answer. Oh, they make you cry. No, oh, if you leave them outside too long, they get brown spots and start sprouting little white hairs. No, and Shrek finally describes like, no, ogres, are like onions because they, they have layers. There's multiple layers to them. There's more to than what can see. And, and Donkey isn't okay with that. He was like, well, not everyone likes onions. Cake. Everybody loves cake. Cake have layers. And then he's like, no, ogres are not like cake. Like, what about parfaits? Parfait? Like, who doesn't like a parfait? And so he says, no, ogres are like onions because there's these there's these layers. Now, this is where the illustration breaks down because I'm not calling God an ogre. But here's the point is God, as he, we read through the scriptures, there are so many different layers to him. There are so many different things and so many different ways that he, he describes himself to us. And you know, as we walk through the scriptures and we look at the way that God operates in our world, like there are some unknowns. There's some mystery surrounding God, of course, but he does reveal himself to us. God has revealed himself to us in different ways. And on page one of the Bible, it is as creator. That is what page one, as we open up the first part of the Bible, this is how God reveals himself to us. But what's fascinating, maybe you notice this as we are reading the creed, is this is actually the third way that God is mentioned in the creed. So it, the creed doesn't start by saying God is creator. No, it starts by saying he is father, he is almighty, and then he is creator. So page one of the Bible, it gives us God as creator. The creed gives us God as creator third. And so maybe you're wondering like, okay, why? Like, what's the big deal with that? Why is that the way that it begins to see, that begins to play out? Because here's what's important for us to know is the Bible is not always chronological. And what we're gonna see is we in, in digest the entirety of God being creator. What we're gonna find is the first thing guys was father. He was in perfect harmony with the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is who he was before he was creator. He was, he was Father. Then he was Almighty. Then he's creator. So out of his fatherhood, out of his almightiness, if that's even a word, I don't know if it is, but out of him being Almighty, he then creates. And so we see God as Father, and then he's Almighty, and then he is creator. And this is the starting point for our understanding of who God is, but also who we are. And so we see him as father, we see him as almighty, we see him as creator. And here's the thing, when we read through the Bible, in the time that the Bible was written, it's even this way in different parts of the world, your name actually was like a defining factor of who you are. Some of you know this, Tiffany and I, we have two dogs. Their names are Maddie and Allie. 
And if I say Maddie and Allie to you, you're going to think, okay, they gave their dog some weirdly human names from Disney Channel shows, but like, it's not going to tell you anything about who they are, right? It's not going to describe, okay, here's what Maddie is like because her name is Maddie, or this is what Allie is like because her name is Allie. Even our kids, like if I say Ava and Emma, like you're like, okay, but it's not really going to describe what they are, what they're like. Their middle names have deeply hope and joy. They have deeply rooted things of who they are and, and those sorts of things, but like their names, names, Maddie and Allie, Ava and Emma, Luke, like if I just say Luke, I haven't really described who I am. But God, when he says he is creator, this is not just an action. This is not just something he did. This is who he is. This is a name that is describing him. The creator tells us what God is like. And so as we dive into Genesis chapter one, I just want to acknowledge at the very, very start of the sermon is there is a lot of debate surrounding Genesis chapter one. If you get around Christian circles enough, like there's going to be a lot of discussion and debate about what is exactly happening. How did God create it? And all of these questions are good questions to kind of talk through and think through. However, I don't think it's the point of Genesis chapter one. Most of the questions, most of the debate circulates around and centers on the how. But the message of Genesis chapter 1, it isn't terribly concerned with the how. Genesis chapter 1 is very concerned with the who and the why. This is the, this is the question that they are answering for us, is who is doing the creating and why is he created? So Genesis 1 is less concerned about the specifics and more concerned about about God and why he is creating. And so perhaps as Caden was reading Genesis chapter one for us, you started noticing a bunch of repetitive statements and repetitive words. And, it, and we've said this before in literature, one of the ways to communicate importance and significance is through the use of repetition. And you cannot help but notice as you're reading through Genesis chapter one, noticing all the repetition. There are several words, several phrases that are said time and time again. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to use those repeated words to kind of see and help us clue into the character of God being creator. And so the first thing that we're going to see, the first phrase is, the, the, uh, is, the first phrase is, this is what happened, or that is what happened. So six times, if you're following along, it's in the Bible, six different times, God said, blah, 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 and that is what happened. God said, let there be light, and that is what happened. God said, and that is what happened. So six different times in our text, it says, and that is what happened. And one of the things I think this is cluing us into to the character of God is that he is creator of everything. He is creator of everything. In fact, the first time that we see this phrase pop up is in day two of creation, where God is creating the, the heavens and the earth. We see the, the skies, it's translated the skies and, and, the, and the ground. But this idea here is this is linking back to Genesis chapter 1 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so that word heaven is literally translated like realm where God stays, the, the realm where God abides. And so this idea is that God, He is creating everything. So before this is happening, like he is the creator of it all. This is how the story tells us. This is why Genesis 1-1 is actually really important. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So what the writer of Genesis is actually doing for us here is this is the main idea. And then we're going to walk through Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, through the rest of it and see how God did this. He's telling us this is what God is, is doing, it has done, and this is how it worked. Now, Genesis chapter 1, 1, again, it's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I've said this before, but if we can believe the first line of the Bible, everything else I feel like is pretty simple. Because if God can create the heavens and the earth, then surely I can trust him with my finances. If God can create the heavens and the earth, surely he is good enough for me to believe what he says about himself in the scripture and what his views on, on my relationships. If God can create heaven and earth, I can trust him in any other area of my life. And so if we can trust the first line of the Bible, if we can commit to that, if we can believe that first line, I feel like everything else is fairly easy. But man, that first line, it's a doozy. That God creates heaven and earth. But here's the reality. Unless we accept, unless we believe, unless we acknowledge God as creator of all things, then we don't know the true God. And so simply put this way, anything that exists besides God is a created being. Anything that exists besides God is a created being or a created thing. Now, maybe you're wondering, did God create evil? Did God create violence? Did God create murder? Did he create death? Answer, no. These are intrusions into God's good world. He created us with the free will to do what we want. Like this, there was this possibility in us, but God did not create evil. He did not make these things. In fact, if we read the story of, of Noah, in Genesis 6, it says of God says, and he looks at the world, he sees the way that they have denied the, the reality of him. They turned themselves into their own gods and they started being evil. It actually says that God was grieved that he made the world. And so anything that isn't, anything in the world that isn't God is a created thing. And for me, my mind automatically goes to the evil one. It goes to Satan, that he is a created thing. And here's what I want to remind you of, though. Because he is a created thing, he has a creator. And Satan may be God's enemy, but he is not his equal. And so God, he is supreme. He's creator of heaven and earth. He has authority. He has power over the entire created world. In fact, it's that confidence that Paul in Colossians chapter one starts to write about Jesus and the way that creation begins to happen and about how Jesus and, and God are superior and how they are greater and supreme to all creation. So Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 20, Paul writes this. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He, cre he, cre he existed before anything was created and he was supreme over all creation. So God is father first. Jesus exists before creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realm and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things that we can't see, such as 
the thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities of the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who are who will raise from the dead. So he is first over everything. For in God, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And so Jesus and God, they have no equal. He is supreme. And Jesus, God being the creator of everything, is the ruler over it all. We talked about that last week, being almighty. He is the ruler over everything, both seen and unseen. So Jesus and God, they have no equal. So that's the first phrase. And here's the, the second phrase that we are going to see is, then God said. Then God said. Again, six different times it's used. Then God said, let there be light. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky. Then God said, let light appear. Then God said, let water swarm. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal. And then God said, and that is what happened. And so what this is cluing us into is how God is the creator of everything, but he creates from nothing. And the cool word for this is, is ex nihilo. This is the theological word for the way that God creates. It's ex nihilo. The idea is like he creates everything out of, of nothing, that nothing existed except for God. And here's kind of what it begins to understand is this is not a work that God is doing, but rather a word. And here's what I mean by that is God is not working it to come to the like, oh, there's some there's some lumber over here. There's this over here. Let me put that all together and start building and making this world. No, God just speaks out of nothing and he creates something. He doesn't need existing materials in order to create the world. He speaks it all. And we see this. The psalmist talks about this and he marvels at God doing this in Psalm chapter 33. He writes this. Starting in verse, verse 6, the psalmist writes, The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, and the stars were born. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the ocean in a vast reservoir. Let the whole earth fear for the Lord, and let everyone stand in awe. For when he spoke, the word, world began. It appeared at his command. And so God created everything out of nothing. And that's amazing. Like, don't miss that. It's beautiful. A cool way to think about this, if we look at Genesis chapter 1, back to verse 2, it says of the world, it says it was formless and empty. There, another, other translations say the world was, was void. Here's a cool way to think about what God is doing. Is God is unvoiding the void. God is forming the formless. God is filling the emptiness. Like that is what he is doing here. There's empty and void and God makes the formless and the empty. He makes it full and he makes it formed. He does this out of nothing. This beautiful, beautiful thing that he creates. He, he sees potential in, a, in nothingness. 
Back when uh, Tiffany and I were living in America, we, uh, we were selling our house when we were living in Florida, and our house was a three-bedroom house. And we had our room, the master bedroom, we had a guest room, and then we had the third room, which at that time we didn't have kids, so it was just like the junk room. It was where everything, you just kind of shoved everything in there that you didn't want to see or worry with. But when we were going to sell our house, our realtor was kind of looking around our house and was like, you need to do something with that room. And they're like, hey, what, why? What's wrong with it? They're like, no one wants to see a junk room. No one wants to see that. People want to see that there's potential in that room. You need to do something with it. You can't just leave it as it is. And so we're racking our brains like, okay, what do we do? We had a couple of guitars and a keyboard and we had an extra couch. And so we're like, hey, we're going to turn this into like a music studio. And so that's what we do. We turn this room into like this music studio, which we never, literally never used it for. But like we turn this room into looking like that because... It had to have potential or the buyers, when they would see it, they wouldn't know what they were buying. And a lot of times, like that's the way we begin to think of stuff is like, okay, we have to see its potential in order to, to understand, to know that it, it can be something. It's not the way it was with God. God didn't have to look at the world. He didn't have, he didn't have to have this template and say, oh, this is what the world could look like if I say a few things. He doesn't have to flip through some magazines and start dreaming up this, this dream earth, or this dream creation. No, God, he sees, and even in the void, even in the empty, even in the nothingness, he sees what the potential can be. I think it's a beautiful reminder of God, and that is what he does. And the same thing for us. Even when we've got nothing to offer, even we think we have nothing to offer, he sees something in us that is so much greater. He sees our potential. He sees what we can do and what we can be about. And so he is the creator of heavens and earth. This is what God does. He takes the chaos and he orders it. He takes the, the void and he unvoids it. He takes the formless and he gives it its form. And have you guys ever thought about how creative God is. Just think about that for a second. Did God have to create hundreds of different types of bananas? He didn't have to, but he did. Did God have to place 3,000 different species of trees within a square mile of the Amazon jungle? No, he didn't have to, but he did. Did God, ha think, did God have to create all kinds of different laughs. I mean, just think about all your friends. Like, there's the silent laugh, there's the giggle, there's the snort, there's the loud and obnoxious laugh. Like, did God have to create all those different types of laughs? No, he didn't. But he's creative and he's diverse. And for some reason, he does all of these things. And every single one of them points to his glory. It speaks of himself. It reflects what he is like. It's no wonder that when David looks around and writes Psalm, 1, or Psalm 19, he starts by saying, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies declare his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. Because the created world, it points to his glory. It points us to the creator. Paul picks up on that idea in Romans chapter 1. That creation speaks about the, the, the reality of God being the creator. So first we've seen, then God said, and that is what happened. And here's the third phrase that we're going to look at. And it was good. And it was good. This is used seven times in the creation narrative. Come to find out that in the Bible, the number seven is the number for perfection. 
And so when God is saying it is good, in a lot of ways saying it seven times, it's like it is, it is perfect. It is perfection. And this begins to clue us into the character of God as creator. And he is doing a free, free act. God is, is, is creating out of his free will. No one is forcing God to create. No one is holding his arm and saying, you have to create this world. You have to do this. No, God is doing this out of a free act. And I think it's really important for our understanding of God, but also our understanding of ourselves. Like he chooses to do something. He makes this choice to do this and he does and he makes it good and he makes it perfect. And this is why God is is father and God is almighty is significant. Because if he was creator first, before God creates the world, he cannot be who he is. Like if God is creator first, if there is no world that is created, God fails to be who he is. And so God doesn't have to create the world to be who he is, but he does it, but he does it anyway. God doesn't have to create in order to be God. He doesn't need us in order to be God, yet he loves us and he values us and he treasures us. God isn't up in heaven lonely and he's saying, okay, I just got to do something because I am lonely. I have nobody to love because we see the pages of the Bible. We see that the Holy Spirit is there, that, that Jesus is there. They're, like he's in perfect harmony. He's loving already. He doesn't need us in order to be loved. Like we're not giving God the ability to love. No, God is love. In fact, like I think this is important. He says it is good to his creation. And if God is just sitting up in heaven in all of his loneliness and has been obsessed with himself forever, whenever something else is going to pop up and begin, like he's going to feel rivaled at his creation. But that's not what God does. No, God says it's beautiful. He delights in his creation. In fact, the very first not good that we come across in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 with Adam and Eve because Eve isn't there yet and Adam is there and there is no person, no, no helper that is suitable for him. And I think in a lot of ways, God is looking and he's seeing Adam. It's like, it is not good for you to be alone because God himself has not been alone. And he says, that's not right. That is not the way we were meant to be. And so God comes And he creates out of free will, out of a free act. He doesn't create to become who he is because of who he is. He creates. Psalm 115 says this, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. So to create the world brings him pleasure. It brought him joy. It pleased him. God wasn't being forced into doing this so that he could be who he is. No, it brought him great pleasure. And I don't know if this is maybe just a, a personality type. Maybe, maybe you're like me in this. Is if I am forced to do something, even if it's something good, I'm not going to like it. Anyone else that way? Is like, if you force me to do something, there's not a chance. I have, I have a couple kids like this as well. Like, and then I just remember in my life, like I think back to when I was in, in primary school and I would go to gym. And one of the things we always had to do in gym was we had to run laps and it was the worst. Like I hated it. And now every single, nearly every single day I go running and I love it. But there was something to being forced to do it that I did not like about it. You forced me to do it. I wasn't a fan. When I was in university, one of the things I would have to do is I had to read a bunch of theology books. And because I had to, 
I wasn't a fan. I didn't like it. Now, a few years ago, I literally read Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians for fun. But when you forced me to do it, not a chance, right? And so when God is looking at his creation, he's not feeling this bitterness that's forced into it. No, he says, man, that's good. And that is beautiful. And here's the reality too, is God didn't just create his creation. He loves his creation, you in particular. This is showing the free will and the love of our father. He looks at his creation and he loves it. And he says, you as human beings, we are his best creation. We are the only ones that get the very good. Everything else is good until he gets to human beings and we are very good. And the reason that this is important is because Genesis chapter one and part of Genesis chapter two are not the only creation story that there is. Like there's a lot of different religions that have a creation story. They have a different creation account. What makes Genesis one different is, is the why. Because other creation stories talk about a God who, was, who were lazy and needed someone to tend to the earth, and so he created human beings. Or other creation stories talk about how the, the God was, was hungry, and needed someone to feed him some sacrifices. And so he created mankind so that they could offer sacrifices to him. And like, this is this lazy God who's detached and doesn't care about his creation. But yet, Genesis chapter 1 is completely different. This is why the why question is so important. Because he is not creating in order to have little minions to serve him. He's creating out of his delight, out of his love of who we are. And he loves us and he's creating us and he's going to fill us with his love. He's going to love us, the overflow of his love. And so we've looked at, then God said, we looked at, it was good. We've looked at, and that is what happened. And there's another repeated thing that we're going to see in verse 26. And it is the, uh, the us and the hour. Maybe you caught this in verse 26. It says this, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. What does the us mean? If you know anything about English, like it means there's, there's plural, right? Because if I'm in a conversation by myself and I'm just saying us, like you're gonna be looking around and like something's wrong with this guy. Like he's talking about this figurative us, like who else is there? And so when God is saying, let us, there are some other people in the room or metaphorically speaking in the room, right? There's not room yet. But like, there's, there's someone else there. There's someone else around. God, he is relational. Here's the fourth part of his character is he is relational. And we read already from Colossians 1 that talked about how Jesus is there. He is superior. He is there before creation. So Jesus is there. But in verse 2, in chapter 1 of Genesis, we find that the Holy Spirit is there hovering around. And it's the, it's the Hebrew word ruach, which is used 371 times in the Old Testament to return to describe the spirit of God that is there, that is present in the spirit. It's there. In fact, John, when he writes his gospel, he's so committed to this. He so deeply believes this, that when he starts in John chapter one, he's, John is actually just kind of like he's He's riffing from Genesis 1. Like it's, he's he's kind of quoting the same thing. It's the idea of this creation story. But what John does for us is really kind of like the, the Wizard of Oz. You remember at the, in the, at the end of Wizard of Oz where like they pull back the curtain and they get a chance to see what is actually happening? 
This is what John is doing for us. He's pulling back the curtain a little bit more so that we can actually see the truth of what is going on in the creation narrative. He says this, John starts off in verse, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word, Jesus, already existed. The Word was with God. The, world, the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. And so he's relational. He's not sitting up in heaven alone as this creator God. He is this relational God. He creates his father. He rules as father, which changes the way that, that we live, which is different from any other creation narrative because he rules out of this relational love. The very first command that God gives mankind is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And depending on what you believe to be true about God, or sorry, Genesis chapter 1, 28, but believing on, depending on what you believe to be true about God will kind of determine what you think this command is going to be. Here's the first command. Then God blessed them and said, be, fruit, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. This is radically different than what we may think of God. If we think of God as just someone who's just waiting for us to mess up and just watching us ready to destroy us at any time, any moment that we screw up, then we don't expect God's first command to be a do not adult. Maybe we think God is nothing more than just giving us a whole bunch of rules and say, this is everything you got to do. You better not break it. But yet the very first command that God gives mankind, it is an adult, but a do. And it's like great things like be fruitful and multiply, govern, fill the earth, reign. Like God is giving us this great opportunity. He's inviting us into who he is. And so I think that this, this command is where this, the story of Genesis begins to move away from God as creator to our role as his creation. Because Genesis 1.28, what it is doing is it's inviting us into being co-rulers and co-creators with God. And so as we begin to look at the parallels of the creation story, it says that the world was empty and void. So then God creates, he puts mankind on the planet and says, now you go and you rule and you fill and you create, you make houses, you, you build communities, you start setting up these different things to, to co-rule my good world, to show it and to shape it and to work the way that is meant to be. This is what God wanted from his creation. This is what he desires for us. He didn't create us just to be like little yes men to him, but he gives us this opportunity to, to, to rule and to reign and co-create with him. I mean, the command is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the world, to, to rule and to reign. He gives this command in, in Genesis 1, 28, he gives this command to Noah after the flood in Genesis 9, verse 1, the exact same command to Noah. And as often is with the Bible, often is with us as human beings, the world does a terrible job at this. 
They do a bad job at ruling and reigning the way that God had intended them to rule and to reign. It all culminates in Genesis chapter 11. There's this moment that happens in Genesis chapter 11. There's this kind of this, this cool, interesting, random story about the Tower of Babel. And so if you, if you have in your Bibles, turn to Genesis 11, verses 1 through 7. Here's, here's what the story says. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used instead of mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. It's the, the same word for heaven. And this is what makes us faint. This, and this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower and the people were building. Look, he said. The people are united. They speak the same language. And the, after this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able, they won't be, they won't be able to understand each other. A weird story, right? It seems a little bizarre. It's like, what, what, what is happening here? And maybe you've heard this story taught on before. I know when I was a kid, one of the things, the reason that the Tower of Babel, the reason that God confused their languages, I was taught is because the people were prideful. Because they are trying to make a tower to make themselves famous. And sure, that's a problem, right? That is clearly pride. But if we read through the story, and especially if we read through the consequences of this story, if we read through the punishment, like if pride is the only issue, it seems like the punishment doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like if pride was the problem, God could have dropped like, I don't know, a meteor or asteroid or something and destroyed the tower and be like, yeah, keep it up, see what happens. Like if that was the issue, that could have, God could, the punishment doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And I've also heard that the problem is like they're trying to get to heaven without God. They're trying to get to God without him. And so maybe that's why God is doing this. Maybe that's why God is upset. That's why he is punishing the people. But again, the punishment doesn't seem to match the crime if that's the crime, right? I mean, God could have easily just been like, okay, keep building the tower. See what happens when you get up into the sky. See what happens when you get to too high of elevation. See how that's going to go out for you. Not going to go well. Like God could have done that and been like, okay, maybe we, maybe we can't actually make it all the way to heaven or we're going to freeze to death and die. All right. But the punishment of confusing their languages it doesn't make sense if pride is the issue. It doesn't make sense if, if building a tower to God and to get to him without, without him is the only issue. The problem for this story actually begins, we found in verse 2, is that they all go and they go together. They find an area and they stay because the commands of the scripture has been to scatter to go and to be and to build the world and to create and, and to go and to fill the world. And yet the people of, in, in the tower, at the Tower of Babel, they're like, no, let's stay here. Then we don't have to go out and rule and reign and co-create. Let's stay here. And so they have rebelled against the first command to go into the world and to, to multiply and to fill the earth. That is why God is scattering or changing the languages. Because what we find out is when they can't understand each other, they begin to scatter and they begin to, to do what they were told to do. Because here's the reality. 
I think this is helpful for us. Is God's love is not for keeping, but for sharing. God's love is not for keeping, but for sharing. As the created, our goal was to, our call was to go and to rule and to reign and to share and to point to his glory in everything that we do. And so as followers of Jesus, we should be very concerned about the way that our world is taken care of because this is God's world and God's planet and we should care about the way that it's cared for. And we should be people who are going out and we are spreading the love of the Father everywhere that we go. He spreads his love to us and we go out and we spread it to other people. And I love the way that Pastor Francis Chan talks about Christians. He says, Christians are a lot like manure. If you leave them all together, they stink terribly. But if you spread them out, everything grows better. Because here's the reality. We are not just meant to huddle. We're meant to go and to spread the love of the Father with everyone that we come in contact with. This is our call as the created to do and to live in a way that reflects the Creator, our Father. And so if we've walked through the, the Genesis narrative, we've noticed some repeated words and some repeated phrases, and, and we left out one. We missed one of the repeated words and repeated phrase that's used another six times. It's this phrase, evening passed and morning came. Now, it's used every single day except day seven. We get to day seven, the day of rest, the day of refreshment, the day of joy, and the phrase isn't used. It's not used in day seven. It's not used in the day when they are meant to rest and just enjoy creation and enjoy God. Why is that? Like, why is this word not used here? And here's, here's the beauty, is I think actually the unuse of this word is just as important, if not more important, than the use of this word that we've seen throughout the scriptures. So this is why, that in Genesis chapter, chapter two, let's read, sorry, chapter two, verses one through, six, one through three. It says, so the creation of the heavens and the earth was, and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God finished his work of creation and he rested from all his work God blessed in the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Again, it doesn't say there was evening and there was morning. And here's why. Because day seven was never meant to end. This is what we were always meant to be. Is this is how life was supposed to be. Is we were supposed to always be in this perfect relationship with God. We were supposed to be in this continual, this continual peace, this continual joy, this continual presence of being with Him. Like this was what we were meant to be. There was not supposed to be an end and a start time and an end time to being in the presence of the Father. Like this is where we were supposed to be. And in fact, as we read through the Bible, this is actually the picture of heaven. Sometimes we get a little complicated. We start thinking through heaven as this, some other things or whatever, but don't miss the point of what heaven actually is. It's back to Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, where we are in continual presence of the Father. And we rest in Him. And we enjoy Him. We marvel at His goodness. And we just delight in Him. Because this is where we were meant to be. But here's the, here's the beautiful thing. is friends, God wants us to be with him now, not just 
in eternity. And for some of us, maybe we're thinking, like, okay, I just got to do some things in order to, to enjoy God to, so that I can be in his presence when I die. But here's the offer of the Bible. Here's the offer of Jesus is that we can be in his presence now. We can be with him here and now. We can enjoy him. We can delight in him. We can walk with him. We can be like him. We can enjoy God's presence here and now. He's inviting us into relationship here right now. Not just when we die that we go and spend eternity with him, but we can live our lives in, in his presence. This is what God wants. This is what God desires. This is the, one of the things that creation is pointing to, knowing God. God wants us to know him. He wants us to be with him, not just in eternity. Yes, in eternity, but here and now to live the life that we were always created to live in perfect harmony with our father, living and enjoying his presence where there is no morning and there is no evening at the end. It is just continual presence with, with God, our father. So I believe that he is the creator of heaven and earth. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for who you are and that you are the creator of heaven and earth. God, we thank you that the power that you have is unmatched and that you, you love your creation. God, you didn't just create us.